Welcome to the journey, or welcome back to the journey of uh, finding our way back to God every day. In Mark's account of Jesus' life, what he taught, what he did, that all worked together to show that he, Jesus, is God's good news for us. In chapter 9 of, of Mark's gospel, the middle of the book, there's this powerful interchange with Jesus and this, this man who saw in Jesus what he needed. Jesus said to him, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now, that's not just a generic, you've got to believe kind of statement. Jesus is making a statement about himself as the only one worth believing, the only worth, one worth trusting, the only one worth entrusting all of myself to. Do you remember what the man said to Jesus? It's the classic response that every one of us who has tried to journey with God authentically wrestles with. Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. He just lays it out there honestly, transparently. This man is an astute observer. And from what he has seen in Jesus, what he's heard from Jesus, especially the way Jesus treated religious people, he knows that if he's not transparent, Jesus will probably expose him in front of everyone. So in front of everyone, he says, I do believe, I want to believe fully, but I still struggle with unbelief in ways that I, that I might not even realize. This man is us, right? Well, he is us the way God desires us to be. Sometimes we just won't humble ourselves and admit it. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Because this man is us, the way Jesus calls us to be. This month, we are talking about what it means to find our way back to God every single day. And, and it's basically quite simple. Well, simple in the sense of uncomplicated, not simple in the sense of easy. It's simply exchanging the truth about God, about who God is, who he must be if he's truly God, for the lies we still believe so easily and so often, and often so subtly that we tend to believe in that internal processor level of our thinking, often not consciously, but at a level that controls what I see in everything that happens to me and how I respond to it. It's about moving from unbelief to belief about God in every area of life. We're, we're exploring four overarching truths about God that counter four of the most common areas of lies that we believe, the most common areas of struggle in the internal processing mechanisms of our mind so that we can become who we really want to be. God is great. God is good. God is glorious. And God is gracious. Last week from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, we saw how growing into seeing and resting in the truth about the greatness of God, that God is always bigger, is, is the exchange we need to believe to help us overcome and deal with those control issues that we still struggle with. God, as we sometimes say, is control in control of the one who is in control. And today, we'll look at another genre of scripture, the book of Psalms, to see the very same process illustrated when it comes to this second great truth about God, the goodness of God. So take your Bible or turn off your smart, smartphone app that you're looking at with one eye and go into the Bible app and turn to the book of Psalms, 
Number 73. I almost called our, day, our teaching today Confessions of a Pastor because that's what this psalm is. We are told at the top of the psalm that it was written by Asaph who wrote 12 of the psalms. Asaph was a pastor. He was called a prophet, what we might call a preaching pastor. He was also a poet. He could paint pictures with words and arouse feelings with words, what we might call today a worship pastor. And in this psalm, Asaph shares his own personal struggle of moving from unbelief to true heart belief in the goodness of God for him. Someone has uh, said about Psalm 73 that it is one of the most emotionally intense prayers in the entire book of Psalms. Listen to Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed completely, swept away by their terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. And yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Quite a confession, isn't it? Did you see yourself in it in any way? The very first line tells us what this psalm is about. The thesis statement of the psalm. Surely God is good to Israel, to his people. That is what he was taught to believe. That is what he always thought he believed. And in the end, that is what he comes back to believing in a new and powerful way. In verse 28, by affirming 
that not only is God good to his people in general, it is good for me, he says, to be near to God. But in between those two statements, the overarching truth about goodness and the deep down heart realization of experiencing God's goodness is this rather long and complicated journey. The first half of the psalm, 14 verses, is this this public confession by a pastor, a spiritual leader, about the unbelief struggles in his own heart. In this first half of the psalm, he, he describes as one who believes his journey into unbelief. He shows us how, how, to, how in our eyes good had become something bad when it comes to God. As I read the first half of this psalm, the picture that comes to my mind is a phenomenon in nature that I don't always recognize in me when it's happening. I, I feel something's happening, but if, if I had the bigger picture perspective, what I would see would look something like this. Do you know what those are? It's army ants. In what some people have called a death spiral. Army ants don't have eyes. They can't see. They navigate by smelling the pheromone trails of the workers in front of them. And and as they march along, they lay down pheromones for others to follow. And sometimes, for whatever reason, those trails begin to loop back on themselves. And the ants become trapped. They become a thick, swirling vortex, marching endlessly until they drop from exhaustion or dehydration. These ants sense no bigger picture than what is immediately ahead of them. It's like, as an article I read this week said, it's like they are imprisoned by a wall of their own instincts. A death spiral. As I read Asaph's journey, it's like, how different are we from those ants? It's almost enough to make you believe in evolution. But, But we haven't evolved that much. Even though we have eyes we can see, supposedly, we still, as Sinclair Ferguson says, we still tend to think with our feelings. And Asaph names the feeling that he gets trapped by that almost had him in a death spiral. Verse 2, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold for I envied. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of those who don't care about God. How does good start going bad? Envy. Perpetually dissatisfied. Discontent. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Craving the next experience. An insatiable need for what I have not yet got. Hold it. Was that not inherent in the original lie that we exchanged for God's truth? The evil one saw our Achilles heel. He he made our original ancestors believe God was not really good to them. He did not have our best interests at heart. Envy is so powerful, so dominating, that even the Garden of Eden is not enough. I sometimes think of the family at dinner time, and somebody decided it was a good idea as a family exercise for everyone to share their favorite supper. Little guy said, oh, mac and cheese. Little sister said, oh, she loved hamburger best. The older sister, barbecue chicken. The teenage boy, oh, it's got to be pulled pork. 
And before dad could speak, the little girl pipes up. And I saw, I know what daddy likes. Daddy likes whatever we haven't got. Busted. Liking what we haven't got. Who hasn't found themselves in the beginning of that spiral, right? And what happens when we like what we haven't got? Well, we begin to develop a distorted view of others. Verse 4 and verse 5. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Why is it always easy for them? And for me, it's always hard. Always? Really? When we start becoming consumed by what we haven't got, it looks like we have it worse than everyone else, right? But very often, those who have, they do abuse what they have. They take more credit for what they have. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous heart comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. There's a lot of truth there. But can you also sense not just a little bit of of dumping, of resentment, of self-pity? He's in the death spiral. And he goes on. Verse 10. Therefore people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? That's what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth on the backs of others. He's totally accurate. Well, like us, when we get into a rant, he's also very articulate. But is he just describing what he observes in others' experience? No. He is throwing in God's face that God is treating others better than him. Especially those who don't deserve it like he does. Has the D word come to your mind lately? Maybe even out of your mouth? I deserve better than this. Folks, Asaph would say, be careful. Your foot is starting to slip. And then he just throws out there the conclusion that he has come to. Verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I have been good for nothing. Remember how the psalm starts? What he was taught to believe? What he thought he believed? God is good to those who are pure in heart. So it's become a contract between him and God. I keep my heart pure. God will be good to me. And who is it that determines what good is to me? If it's me that determines what good looks like, then who is it that is God? It's me. I am in the driver's seat. I get to control how, mu- how and how much God is good to me. I've made that fatal exchange. I've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Asaph's struggle has become all-consuming. The dominant perspective of his life. He sees everything through the eyes of envy, of dissatisfaction, of discontent. How God is not treating him as good as people who don't take their relationship with God seriously. Verse 14, all day long I've been afflicted. Every morning, new things that remind me of it. Can you see how he is beginning to see everything through the envy lens? 
how his feelings about one thing color his perspective on everything. There's an insightful book on, on the Psalms called Cry of the Soul by uh, Tremper Longman, who is an Old Testament scholar, and Dan Allender, who is a psychologist. They talk about how our desires consistently extend beyond our needs. And when that happens, here's how they describe the death spiral. We have unfulfilled desires, which are, which are not wrong necessarily. They may be legitimate. It leads us to comparing what we're getting to what others are getting, which leads to envy and jealousy and to blind ambition. And then they say it always ends in destructive behavior. And they make the statement that the irony of envy is that it actually destroys what we want. Okay, I think we got the death spiral. Enough of that. He spends half the psalm on it. We won't give it that much time, but to this point, he's doing what we might call confessing. He's acknowledging, being open about it, how he journeyed into unbelief. But, but coming back to God means more than confessing. Now today, we might think he's done enough. We'd say, wow, he is so authentic, right? You know how Asaph would have said, what Asaph would have said if you had told him that he was being very authentic? He would have said, huh? I'm not being authentic. I'm being transparent about the fact that I am not authentic. If I say I believe in God and have this gap in my belief in who God is in any area, in this case, God good, God's goodness, I, I'm only being authentic when I return to a renewed belief and a deeper awareness, a growing appreciation of the goodness of God. That is being authentic. And in verse 15, we come to the turning point. As he reflects on his journey, it seems as he is saying that the turning point, the wake-up call, what actually, for a period of time, probably compounds his struggle, was what we sometimes call the R factor. Responsibility. Something we resent and kick against but in the end, as he reflects back on it, he realize, realizes it was actually a protection for him and for others. On, on more than one occasion, quite often actually, when someone has come to me to, to help them find a, a way back to God or to describe their journey back to God, what I've heard was, I began to realize what I was doing to my family. I began to see how this was impacting my wife or affecting my kids. You know, there's a tendency today to downplay that. No, don't make it about others. Do it for yourself. Folks, that's, that's dangerous rote. That is an indicator that our foot might be starting to slip. Listen to how the psalmist puts it. In verse 15, the, the, the turning point verse in the psalm. If I had actually spoken out like that, made my rant public, I would have betrayed your children. Wow. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. He realized that what he really believed in his heart was contrary to what he had been taught to believe and what he was teaching to God's people. And although that was part of his struggle, he realizes that the fact that he didn't dump it out was a, a good thing. He didn't lead others astray in their attitude to God. It's like, okay, I have to figure this out. 
But can I say it again? Admitting a problem, admitting a sin, admitting unbelief can, can actually cause this feeling of relief. I bottled it up for so long, letting it out can feel like a release, but a release is not yet a return. It, it is not yet belief. There's this wonderful st- turning point statement as he begins the last half of the psalm. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. I love that. Why does he enter the sanctuary of God? To have it out with God? No, you don't enter the sanctuary of God to have it out with God. That's what he's been doing outside of the sanctuary. He goes to the sanctuary to listen to God. He goes to the sanctuary to get a perspective from God, to see like God, until I entered the sanctuary, the presence of God. The psalmist had finally had enough of his envy and draws the line with his heart. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, until, until picks up the first 16 verses of outraged sensitivity, of battered reason, of provoked faith, and marches them all into the sanctuary. Step number two, revisit what I know must be true, that God is good, and return. Revisit and return. Any way you need to say to your heart, okay, it's envy, it's jealousy, I get it, I admit it, and I've had enough of it. I know it's time to revisit what I know must be true. God is good and return to God. Let's read again. Verses 17 to 20. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, you will despise them as fantasies. What, what does he see in the sanctuary of God's presence? First, he realizes that he is using the wrong measuring stick for goodness. What measuring stick is he using? He's measuring God's goodness by his day-to-day experience. I don't know about you, but I get a little uncomfortable sometimes when I hear stories like this. You know, my brother-in-law was supposed to be in that car that crashed and killed everyone, but, but because his alarm didn't go off in the morning, he didn't make his ride, and he was not in there. Isn't God good? Well, yeah, but what about the people who did die? The families of the people who died. Does that mean God is not good to them? Do we realize that that is what those statements can simply imply? The measure of God's goodness is not my daily experience. Those are some of the ways we get to experience God's goodness, but those are not the measure of God's goodness. We're going to let that hang there for a few minutes. Let us process that as we, as we listen to the psalmist describe how being on the other side of that kind of a perspective of God's goodness brought him. Verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast. Before you. 
I was not authentic. I was being ignorant. I was being an idiot. Do you realize what he's saying? Verse 1. He says, God is good to the pure in heart. Verse 13. I have kept my heart pure for nothing. And now, in God's presence, he becomes broken because he realizes he is not the pure-hearted person he thinks he is. His thoughts about God prove that. Which leads him to take a closer look at God. How powerful, how how empowering God's goodness really is. Verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. What is the measure of God's goodness? It's not whether I am experiencing something good, although those are some of the little indicators that God is still good, but they are not the measure of how good God is. The measure of God's goodness is that even though my heart is not good, even though I fail and do not believe in ways that I don't even recognize, He is always faithful to His covenant to me that he has given me himself. We have to go back to the thesis statement in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel. Israel, the people with whom he had made a covenant commitment, they are his. He will not abandon those who have allowed him to claim they are his. You may fail me, but I will not fail you, says God. I will not fail you, and I will be with you even when, and especially when, life does not feel good. Verse 23, he says, yet I am always with you. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My portion You know what he's saying? He was saying that I was thinking about my portion in the sense of the things you were giving me every day, the things I was getting from you that I could consume and have and enjoy. Well, actually, I was thinking about what I wasn't getting from you. But I was forgetting that what I get is you, all of you and all you have. Can it actually get any better than that? Verse 28, the way I will measure good is that it is so good to be near God. Let me just give you a paraphrase of something Charles Spurgeon said. He said, God is good, not because he causes things that seem or feel good to happen in our lives, but because in the midst of the storm, God comes closer to us than the storm could ever be. You see, the the choice we have to make, the choice this psalmist is making, is we can choose where we put God. Well, not put God. We can choose where we see God. Let's take the analogy of a storm. 
I can see me is here, the storm right here coming at me, and God over there. Or I can see me here, I can see God here, and the storm over there. The psalmist is saying, I choose to see you as my portion. You are what I get. There's an article this last week in the Huffington Post by Sarah the Barge, who talks about this business of saying God is good when little things happen all the time. And here's how she concludes. She says, we have got to stop only talking about God's goodness when an unexpectedly pleasant thing happens because God's goodness is not dependent on an outcome or an emotion or a barely missed doom story. God is good. Paul, the man he thought he was doing God well, for whom Jesus threw a monkey wrench into it all by declaring that God's goodness was given to everyone in Jesus. His nearness was not about rituals and a national birthright. Paul fought Jesus until Jesus met him and melted his heart. And after Paul's heart change and life orientation change, he writes a lot of the New Testament. In the book of Romans, he writes about how to get derailed into envy and jealousy and bitterness when things don't seem to go well. About interpreting God's goodness in light of good things in life experience. He says, Romans 8, 28, all things, all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called by him according to his purpose. What kinds of things work together for good? Becoming like Jesus in our character as we realize the security of our destiny. And then he says, would a God who does that would he not graciously give us everything we need? Listen again, as we've read many times, to Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. He begins with this question. What then shall we say in response to all of these things? What things? Well, on the one hand, all of the negative things we experience in life because we want to follow God sometimes. And on the other hand, the truth about what God has done and will do for us in Jesus. How am I supposed to put all that together in life? What shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that is an amazingly good God. So one more thing the psalmist points out toward in terms of how to make sure we don't fall into the death spiral again. How to keep that 
unbelief gap smaller when it comes to the goodness of God. Another insight he gets from going into the sanctuary. We read it, but we didn't comment on it. In verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing. All of those things on earth and from earth, our earthly experience, earth has nothing I desire besides you. The only way to stay out of the envy trap, the death spiral, is to reframe how I think about my desires in the presence of God and understanding the powerful goodness of God. The psalmist gets at the heart of the lie we believe, the lie that we have exchanged in our heart for the truth about God, the lie that's at the heart of envy, dissatisfaction, and discontent. And that lie is this, that there is something I need from God other than God himself in order to be happy, to be content, to be positive. Do you see what happens when that is what we believe? God has become a means to an end. That thing, that experience, that position has become more important than God, which means it has become my God. And it will eat my lunch. Envy is a signal I'm in the death spiral. But the psalmist comes to see what it is that caused him to enter that death spiral. And so what is it that you are demanding, expecting from God, that he hasn't given you yet in your time? Do you see what this psalmist is pointing us toward? What if? What if, instead of having to go down the death spiral to the point of having to come a long way back, what if I used that signal of envy, of jealousy arising, a feeling of discontent? What if I recognized it just a little bit sooner and used it as another kind of signal? What if I realized, as Tim Chester puts it, that every longing in me is actually a longing for God? That longing may be a distorted version of my longing of God, but it is still a longing for the God we were made to know. And what if we used that awareness to come to the sanctuary, the presence of God, to soak in, to rest, our, rest in our nearness to God just a little quicker? Because since God is good, I don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. What's the elsewhere that is distracting you today? What is the elsewhere that is making you discontent? Maybe it's not technically an elsewhere. Maybe it's an also, an addition to you, too, that you have to have in addition to God to be content. But as you think about it, you realize that it's becoming bigger in your thinking all the time. It's really become an elsewhere. If you've had the undeserved goodness of being married for a number of years, you can probably identify with something LaDonna and I have experienced. After quite a few years of marriage, we went through this desert experience in life, not with each other, but 
in, in what life was delivering for us and demanding of us. And I was stuck in the, in the desert in a number of ways. And we were distant from each other by at least a six-hour drive. And, we were, uh, and she was in a, a, an overwhelming job herself. Now, we've always tended to think that we had a good marriage and at times even a great marriage. But that season, we began to see our relationship in a whole new life. You see, when we were first married, we were able to live on so little and, and yet we made those daring, adventurous decisions. And as our friends were busy climbing the ladder and accumulating stuff, we would often say, we don't need all of that. All we need is each other. But over the years, as life happens, and in some ways life became more good to us, we were able to live a little bit more comfortably, and although we didn't even realize it, when life was not quite as good as we thought we deserved, we, we would occasionally say, oh well, at least we have each other. We didn't even notice the shift from all we need is each other to at least we have each other. It, it was so subtle. It was during that time of desert when life really was not good in many ways that we realized it and we came back to the line we used to, na- used to, to, to use. Hey, we can handle it because all we need is each other. You see, when we say at least we have each other, what does that imply? It implies subtly that we have lost something really big. And what we still have is, well, it's great, but it's not what we really want. So could it be that the good in those things that we think we aren't getting from God and we deserve to get from God that have become so big, could it be that those things are God inviting us to come back to saying, Lord, all I need is you. That kind of a relationship with God. Because God is good, I don't have to look anywhere else. I do not need anything else to be satisfied, to be fulfilled. Can I, can I get you to just say it out loud right where you are? God, you are good. Say it. God, you are good. And the next line, God, you are all I need. Say it. God, you are all I need. And so the challenge we have is to recognize dissatisfaction and say to God out loud, Lord, all we need is each other. Let's pray together. Lord, we read the psalmist saying, as the, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my heart longs for you. And we recognize that we are not quite yet there all the time. We hear and read about Jesus saying to the woman at Samaria that he would give her water to drink that she would never be thirsty again. And Lord, we, we say we want that water. Help us to see again today that you have given us that water. That we have in Jesus all we need. And that is enough. Thank you, Jesus.
for calling us back again today to you and your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.